Uh, we're taking a break from Romans. Uh, we've been uh, walking through Romans now for many months, and uh, this coming week I wanted us as a church to really focus on uh, what the church has traditionally called Holy Week. Uh, Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday, which Palm Sunday is today, uh, and Palm Sunday usually marks, not usually, but always marks when Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, uh, his, his life and his ministry and his teachings, one of the things that Jesus was really clear about, uh, especially to the 12 men who followed him as well as to the crowds, is he was not confused as to what he was doing, why he was doing it, and where he ultimately was going. Uh, so on numerous occasions, he would tell his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of men, be uh, mocked and brutally beaten, ultimately murdered and put on a cross. And on numerous occasions, the disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about. He, they heard the words coming out of his mouth, but they could not comprehend what Jesus ultimately was talking about and why he was talking about his death. Uh, so this week, uh, I'm going to focus on uh, actually one event that happened about the day before Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Uh, I'm looking at the final miracle that's at least recorded in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, of the last miracle, at least that we know of, that Jesus performed before he went to the cross. Uh, it might be a story that you're familiar with, but it's a story of a blind man uh, who's named uh, Bartimaeus. And uh, Jesus meets this man as he's headed towards Jerusalem uh, in a very, at best, odd encounter. Uh, and so this morning, I wanted to focus on this what I think is a tremendously significant story to the Easter story of this man's uh, encounter, uh, this man's interaction with Jesus. Um, as you walk through this week, um, it's helpful always to keep in mind that Good Friday's coming, that Easter is coming. It's helpful to always consider why we celebrate things like Good Friday and why we celebrate things like Easter. Uh, but this week, I really wanted to challenge myself and to challenge each of you not just to consider and think about it, uh, but genuinely enter into what's known as the passion of Jesus. Uh, passion in our culture is uh, often attributed to really nothing that biblically what it means. Uh, passion, so when we talk about the passion of Jesus, we're talking about the suffering of Jesus. Uh, and very specifically, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life was just marked with suffering from denial and betrayal and abandonment uh, to being mocked and spit upon and hit and flogged and then ultimately nailed to a cross. Uh, so this week, I really wanted to challenge each of you. If you're a Christian, uh, don't just think about, oh yeah, Good Friday's coming up and Easter's coming up. I really want you to enter into his suffering, enter into his passion and ask yourself tough questions of, Jesus did all of this, why? And if you come to the conclusion the right conclusion that he did it all for you, did it all for me, then you should ask yourself another question. What should my life be look like in light of the passion of Jesus? So this week, please uh, consider uh, really entering into uh, a week-long season, as it were, of really reflecting upon what Jesus has done. Uh, come back this Friday night at 7.30. As I mentioned earlier, it will be a, an intense uh, remembrance, an intense look into exactly what Jesus did for us, uh, and then we'll celebrate uh, a week from today that Jesus 
uh, is very much alive and at work uh, in our lives and in the life of this church. Um, but this morning, uh, we look at uh, the story of a blind man. And I'm going to, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip open to the Gospel of Luke. Um, and I'm going to start at uh, Luke chapter uh, 18, specifically verse 31. And I'm looking at a, a text of Scripture that Jesus is teaching. And this is the sixth time in Luke's Gospel where he records uh, that Jesus told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He, what Jesus is saying, everything that was spoken of in the entire New Testament, in entire Old Testament, is about to be fulfilled. Verse 32, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Now, let me just stop there. It would seem that it's pretty clear. I mean, Jesus clearly articulates Guys, this is where we're going, and this is who's going to do these things, and this is exactly what is going to be done to me. One would think that each of them would fully grasp, okay, we get it. You've said this now six times. This is the sixth and final time. We understand now, Jesus, what you're doing. But verse 34 records this. The disciples did not understand any of this. The meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. You ever feel like in your life, you're the last one to be clued into what God is doing in your life? There's times where it seems like everyone else and their mother knows what's going on in your life, but when you try to just figure out, I just don't understand what God is doing, what God is saying to me, what God is showing me, what God is teaching me, it's typical that we're usually the last ones to clue into what God is doing. And very clearly here, the disciples, a week out, less than a week, about five days out from Jesus going to a cross after being with this man for three years, three years, they are still without a clue as to exactly what Jesus is doing. It's easy to point the finger and be like, these guys are just really slow. How could they possibly not understand what Jesus was doing? And typically, I think for them and I think for us as well, why we, generally speaking, don't understand the activity or the work of God in our life is because our expectations of what God should be doing in our lives is often very different of what God actually is doing in our life. Does that make sense? We often expect God to act one way, to perform or do something in a very specific manner or in a very specific way or specific time. And when we don't see God you know, living up to our expectations of him, we're confused. How could God, why is he doing that? Or how could he be doing this? These men fully expected that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom on earth. All of his teachings, all of his miracles were all leading up to Jesus, this inauguration of Jesus coming to Jerusalem and being the conquering king who would rid the Israelites of the oppressive rule of Rome. He would set Israelite, the Israelite nation free from the oppression. That's what they were expecting Jesus to do. And so when Jesus kept saying, brutally beaten, 
spit upon, denied, betrayed, killed. Well, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense because you're going up to Jerusalem to set up your kingdom. So we're confused as to what you're talking about. Now, eventually the disciples would understand after his resurrection what Jesus did and that Jesus didn't come to establish some earthly kingdom. He came to establish an eternal kingdom. But I believe a lesson we can all learn from the disciples, I guess what I'll call lack of understanding, uh, is just this. As long as you and I have in mind the things of men, we will be utterly confused about the things of God. If our hearts, if our minds are so bent on the ways of men or the things of men, we will be utterly confused as to the activity of God in your life, around your life, through your life, you'll be at a loss. And if you're a Christian, there are a lot of Christians who spend a majority of their Christian faith confused, who are asking questions of God, I just don't get what you're doing. But the problem is they've been asking that same question not only for a few days, a few weeks, or a few months, but they've been asking that same question for a few years. I think one of Peter's uh, more moments that he probably wishes he could forget is uh, when he looked at Jesus and rebuked him. Uh, Jesus was teaching Peter and the other disciples, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be killed, but on the third day, I will rise again. And uh, Matthew actually, I'm sorry, Mark records this in Mark chapter 8. He says this, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine looking at Jesus and, and rebuking him? Jesus, you don't have a clue as to what you're talking about. You really need to stop talking, Messiah, Savior, because you're really leading people astray with this talk of Jerusalem and you dying. I can't fathom... Peter actually having not only the courage, but to literally go and rebuke Jesus. And this is what Jesus, how he responded. Now, you would think Jesus would be like, oh, Peter, thanks, man, for calling me out. I really appreciate, Peter, you coming alongside me and loving me and saying kind of the hard thing. Well done, Peter. But uh, Peter uh, hears this from Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is not like church lady Satan, where he's trying to be funny. He's literally looking at Peter, one of his disciples, and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? Well, Satan had a different kingdom agenda that he wanted to advance. And for that, he was thrown out of heaven. Peter had a very different agenda that he wanted to advance, and it wasn't the agenda of Jesus. So, Jesus says, but when Jesus turned, looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. And he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I think why the disciples were slow to understand is their expectations were very different and what they expected, they had in mind the things of men. And I just wanted to ask a very quick question of how do you cultivate a mind that's actually on the things of God? If Peter's minds, the disciples' minds, and many around him were utterly bent on the things of men, how do you, how do I cultivate a mind that is ultimately bent on the things of God, the ways of God? 
And I have a very short and very simple answer. How do you cultivate the mind of God in your life? God's word. And I don't mean God's word where you just read it just to check off the list of I read my Bible today, now I can go on and feel better about myself because I had a quiet time. I'm talking about reading the word in such a way where the word begins to read you, where the word begins to reveal to you your heart, your motives, your desires, the reasons behind what you do, your reactions, your responses. So much so that you're reading the word and it's reading you that what's coming from you is no longer your agenda, no longer your will, desires, and dreams, but the plans and purposes of God. Like how John Calvin said, assuredly, when the word of God is despised, all reverence of him is gone. Now, if you just flip that around, when there is an absolute love and affection for the word of God, what will begin to show up in my life is a love for the things of God, for the activity of God in my life and around my life. Now, the disciples were confused. Now, the irony of the story that we're focusing in on this morning is the blind guy, okay? The blind guy is the only one who could see. The blind man is the one who actually saw with clarity Jesus. Everyone else who had their vision was blinded to what this man, Bartimaeus, could see. And this is the story. Uh, Luke chapter 18, start verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, Jericho is about 10 miles away from Jerusalem, so he's about to enter into the city for his triumphal entry. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what's happening? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now just notice, they called him Jesus, but they, all they said is, it's the, it's the Nazarene. It's the guy who was born, raised in, in, in the Nazareth area. Verse 38, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and he ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that a great question? Of all the things that Jesus could have said, maybe even should have said, he stops in his tracks and he looks at this man and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight, followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Also praised God. It's the irony in this is the blind man could see him, but no one else in the crowd could see him. Now, what you need to know about this blind guy is the technical term for him is he was expendable. He was a throwaway. If you were physically disabled, if you were a physically handicapped person in that day and culture, uh, you were expendable, meaning your life did not matter. Your life at best was a nuisance or a hindrance to those around you. Now, if you can, enter into what it must have been like for this man. Not only was he blind, 
but he's sitting on the road begging. That was his livelihood. He lived upon the mercy and grace of those that would at least listen to him and maybe throw him some crumbs every once in a while. Can you imagine the emotional condition of the man, the relational condition, the physical condition, the mental condition? Can you imagine the spiritual condition of this man? Everywhere he would turn in his life, he was shut out. And not only shut out, but he was told to shut up. So I can't even fathom this man's pain. One would assume because of his condition, because of his situation, this would be a man who would be absolutely filled with bitterness, with anger towards God. Why am I like this? Why, am, why has this happened to me and not this person over here? You think that this man would be bitter and angry towards the crowds, to the people around him? But what you see in this man is the complete opposite of what you would expect. A man who's great courage, and as Jesus would commend him in a bit, a man of great faith. Picture the crowd, the commotion is, you know, everyone is getting excited that Jesus has showed up in their town. He's passing through. And the man hears this and he asks a simple question, what's, what's going on? And the people say, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Have you ever had one of those moments where you kind of daydreamed about what you would do if ever presented or put in a situation? You ever daydream in advance of like, okay, if my boss ever says this to me, my response, I'm going to be so ready, I'm going to have a quick, a, a very wise, a very witty response to him. And then you get in that situation, and he says whatever you had daydreamed about, and your response is you just fumble through it. Or you, if you're a guy, and you're excited about maybe a certain girl, and you're like, okay, if she ever comes up to me, and she at least looks at me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come off as really suave and really smooth, but then she comes up to you, and you can't even get a word out, and you just look like an idiot. I often find that we think about things that we will do if ever put in a situation, but when the situation actually comes, we do generally the complete opposite. I think one of my not-so-great moments is uh, I'm a, I really enjoy uh, a pastor whose name is Andy Stanley, a great communicator of God's Word, a really helpful author who's written a lot of just insightful books, and uh, I had the opportunity, and this is a pastor of a church of about 30,000 people, uh, so a small little setup they've got going on in Atlanta. And uh, I was at his church, uh, this was years back, uh, and my uncle actually goes to this church and knows Andy quite well and said, hey, I'll definitely introduce you to him. So I had already planned in my head, I want to impress this guy, because I want Andy to look at me and be like, my goodness, will you just come and take over our church? Because that's what I thought he was going to just take one look and just ask me to do that. And I'd be like, Andy, please. <laughs> okay, I will. Um, and so it's a mini like arena that this church meets in. And after church is over, there's literally a line. I'm not exaggerating. A couple hundred people who are literally just standing around waiting to talk to Andy, shake his hand, that kind of thing. And I'm like, now I'm feeling kind of ridiculous because I'm just one of the two, three, four hundred people here. And I wanted to go, but his personal assistant comes up to me and my uncle and says, hey, why don't you guys come with me? And I'm like, all right, well, where are we going? She's got this fancy headset on. I'm like, well, follow the lady in the headset. She's got to be important. And we go to this back room, and I'm sitting there with Kyla, and I begin to daydream like, wow, I've thought about this moment that I would actually get to meet him, and I think it's about to happen. 
And then literally about 60 seconds later, Andy Stanley comes into a conference room with me and my wife and my uncle and sits down at a table, and he is utterly confused as to why he's even there. Someone just said, go to this room, and he went to this room, and he looks at me and says, what's, what's up? And I'm like, I don't know, what's up with you? <laughs> Everything that I had intended to say came out and like, I don't know, what, what, what's up with you? I mean, my face was just red, and he was actually pretty gracious and knew that I was at best an idiot and guided me through the rest of the conversation. All of this to make a very small point. I wonder if the blind man actually ever considered, my goodness, what if Jesus actually stops? I'm screaming. I'm actually screaming even louder. What on earth am I going to do if Jesus actually stops to turn my way or, or look my direction. And I love that when he hears Jesus is close by, he does the only thing that he possibly can do. He can't run up to him. He's blind. Certainly no one's going to help him. And so he uses the one thing that he has. He uses his voice and he begins to scream, Jesus, son of David. Now, it might not seem that significant, but this is the first time that anyone in Luke's gospel refers to Jesus as the son of David. Mary, when she was told that she was going to give birth to Jesus, Messiah and Savior, was told that this would be the son of God, the son of David. Through him, eternal kingdom would be set up. No one in Luke's gospel referred to Jesus as the son of David. I'll explain a little bit more, but the crowds are hearing this man scream. And so as they look at him, they literally tell him, it says in the NIV, be quiet, but that's not strong enough language. They looked at this man and said, shut up. Stop screaming. You are embarrassing us. You are embarrassing our town. Please stop making a fool of yourself and a fool of us. Please shut up. Go back to this man's mental state, his emotional state, his relational state, how many times he's probably heard that message. And this man right now is confronted with a decision, with a choice. Do I listen to what they're telling me to do? Do I listen to the crowds because they're now telling me to shut up? Or do I do what I know in my heart I should be doing and crying out for Jesus? Now, I don't want to make at all a big point because this is not exactly the point of this one verse, uh, but as I was reflecting on this man's decision, I really started reflecting and considering myself and how many of us listen to the people in the crowds around us because we're so afraid of what people will think about us if we actually follow through on what we know, what our heart is yearning and screaming for us to do. We're more concerned about and just fearful of what man will think of me, and it paralyzes us to do nothing. As I consider this man, he had a choice to make. Do I listen to those who are yelling at me now because I'm making a spectacle, or do I continue to scream? And I'm actually thankful that the blind man chose not to listen. And Luke records in verse 39, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. I just love kind of the attitude of, 
you thought I was making a ruckus before. I'm going to up the volume a little bit, and I'm going to scream even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. I mentioned this is the first man to refer to Jesus as the son of David, and son of David simply means, it's a title that means Messiah. In the Old Testament, there was a promise that through the line of King David would be a Messiah, would be a redeemer, would be one who would rescue, save, redeem God's people. No one in Luke's gospel identified or referred to Jesus as the son of David. Luke does not give a reason as to why or explain why this man says son of David. But the one thing that is very revealing about this man, this blind man, this blind beggar, who was expendable, a throwaway. He knew that if he could just get a a few moments with Jesus, he knew his life would be changed. I, as I'm just, was thinking through and praying through, was really convicted by that. His belief was if I can just get around Jesus, if I can get the man close to me, my life will not be the same anymore. I don't know if that is a conviction that is shared by many Christians. If I can just be with, get around, be close to, if I can just get next to Jesus, everything will be different. My life will radically change. I think there's a lot of people who believe that if I could just be around Jesus, he'd be a great addition to my life. If I could just be around Jesus, Jesus would be a great guide to me when I get lost. Or if I could just be around Jesus, he would be a great friend to me when I feel really lonely and no one else wants to hang around with me. But what I see in this man, this blind beggar, is a man who just said, if a few moments with the Savior, everything will be different. And so he did everything he possibly could to get the attention of Jesus. Most people thought probably Jesus is not going to pay attention to this guy. Why would he? No one else does. Why should Jesus pay attention to this man? And I have to believe that there were other people trying to get the attention of Jesus. There had to be other people in the crowd asking Jesus, come sign an autograph. Jesus, come bless my child over here. Jesus, come this way. So why on earth did Jesus stop for this man? Of all the people in the crowd, why did he get picked? Why him? There were hundreds, if not thousands of people lining up to see Jesus pass through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. This is something that Jesus actually taught uh, in a verse that uh, he repeats many times throughout all of the Gospels. But uh, he says this in Matthew 23, 12. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think this is a promise in Scripture that we often neglect. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Meaning, if you live your life to make much of you, if you position or jockey yourself to be the center, where you even want other people to give praise, accolades, attention to you, God will humble you. And often it will hurt but to the individual who makes the decision to humble himself, 
before God, before people, that is the man, that is the woman that God will actually raise up or lift up. I think Jesus saw and heard, he heard one thing that he never heard before. He heard someone call him the title son of David. No one else had called him that. So as he hears that, he turns his head. And he looks and he sees this blind beggar. And I think what he sees in this man is a pretty humble, broken man. And I love what Jesus does next. He says, bring him to me. That man who's screaming appropriately who I am, the son of David. The man who is in the lowest position in all of the crowds here. The man that you consider to be a throwaway. Bring that man to me. And do you notice what he said? Not Jesus, but the beggar. What was his request? What was his first request? His first request was for mercy. He didn't go right for, give me my sight, give me my vision, do this, do this. He said, son of David, would you please have mercy on me? It takes a pretty humble man, humble woman, to actually come before his God, to come before her God and say, what I need most from you right now is mercy. What I need most from the Messiah is is grace. Son of David, will you have mercy on me? If it was you, if you were the expendable, if you were there in this story, would you be shouting out, Son of David, have mercy on me? Or would you be shouting out something altogether very different? Why me? Why is this my lot in life? Why am I blind? Why am I the beggar? Why am I the reject? Hey, Jesus, what about me? It seems that I've been cursed by you. Give me a reason or explanation. But rather than approach Jesus in a very high and lifted up, a very prideful attitude, bitter and angry, this man pleads, he cries out for mercy. I try to think through of all the things that this guy possibly could have said And it was a long list of obscenities and curses because of his condition, simply crying out of why me, requesting that everyone else around him be punished. (laughs) If that was you, wouldn't you be a little bit ticked off at the crowds? Hey, Jesus, would you just kind of do one of those things with your hands and knock them all out for me? But this man simply says, Jesus, will you have mercy on me? Luke 18, 40, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I love that the only guy in the entire crowd that day that got Jesus to stop was him. I love how Luke just so artistically and spot on writes this story, recounts this story of Jesus stops. No one else could stop Jesus in this moment, but this man stops Jesus. And Jesus just simply looks at him. What do you want me to do for you? Now, one would think, Jesus, I don't know, he's blind. I don't know, he might want his sight back. So is Jesus really asking this man because he's, he's clueless? How do you look at a blind man and say, well, hey, what would you like me to do for you? It's like asking a kid in a candy store, well, what would you like in here today? Well, I don't know, genius, I want candy. 
Like why on earth would Jesus ask this man, what do you want me to do for you? I don't think Jesus was at all confused as to this man's condition. I think what he wanted to do was to draw out of this man a response. What would you have said? Now, I think, go back to when we kind of pre-think through our, what we would do in certain situations. If Jesus came to you right now and said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you say? If you're honest, I think most of us don't have a clue as to what we would want Jesus to do for us. I think we would probably reach into what is our biggest annoyance in life right now, what our biggest frustration in life right now, what our biggest temptation is, but do you honestly know what you want Jesus to do for you? One question, one answer right now. What do you say? There was absolutely no hesitation whatsoever in this man. He looked at Jesus very quickly and very short, Lord, I want to see. And do you notice he didn't call him son of David? What does he call him now? He's before Jesus and he says, Lord. A title of respect, of authority, of I am beneath you. You are master, you are Lord. I am not. Lord, I want to see. And I love just as quick as his response came, Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith, your faith, has healed you. Go back to the question I asked you a minute ago. What would you ask for? Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you? The man was screaming for Jesus. He gets Jesus to stop. He has now audience with Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want? I think there's a lot of us who are praying and crying out, Jesus, pay attention to me. Look at what's going on in my life. Are you ready for God to address you and say, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus looked at the man, said, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Wow. Would anyone in the crowd have pegged this guy as a man of great faith? Would anyone have looked at him and be like, yes, you are the man who has great faith. I don't think anyone would have picked him as great faith, but Jesus says, it's your faith, brother. It is your faith that has healed you. So it begs the question, what is faith? If it's his faith that brought this healing, I think a lot of us believe that faith is something we grow into. Faith is after I read my Bible enough and I study it and I pray hard enough and I go to church and I serve and I do and I do and I do, then eventually I will be a person of great faith. That is not faith. You want to know what faith is? It simply means to believe that God can do and will do and is powerful enough to do what he says he will do. This man believed that Jesus could do for him what he asked. Why would you ask someone to give you sight if you did not believe that he could give you sight? This man didn't like work up his, his great faith after years and years and years. It was on the moment, standing in the presence of Jesus, I believe you can do for me what you're asking. So make it personal to us. 
Do you have faith? And I don't mean just do you believe in Jesus, recognize him as God's son, as the savior. Do you really believe that Jesus can accomplish in your life what Jesus has promised to accomplish in your life? I think what happens is there's a lot of us who think, well, I believe he can, but what I need to do is I need to get these things done first in order for him to do that. Meaning it's a little bit of faith in Jesus and a lot of bit of faith in my performance. Because I don't really so much believe it when I'm having an off day, when I didn't pray, when I didn't read my Bible, when I didn't do something. I either believe in Jesus or I don't believe in Jesus. I see in this man a great man who believed that Jesus could do what Jesus asked. Now, some of you might be frustrated already and be like, Michael, I pray and I believe that God can do and wants to do in my life what I am asking, but he doesn't. That's fair. So the question is why? Why doesn't God seem to do for me when I'm responding and believing? Why doesn't he do for me what I'm actually requesting or asking him to do? Whatever it is you're asking for, what will you do with it? Okay, if you're asking Jesus for something right now and you're believing that Jesus can, will, is able to do whatever that is, you identify it. My question to you is, what will you do with that? If Jesus responded and granted you sight like he did this man, what would you do with your sight? Would you follow him or would you use it to further your own agenda? I I hear a lot of people who say, I just want God to do this for me. And it's not so much because it's furthering God's agenda in my life and around my life. It's furthering what my agenda is. I'm convinced that Jesus loves us too much to give us that which will ultimately harm us or lead us away from him. God might not be granting you something because if he did, it would destroy you. It would destroy your relationship with him. It would actually be the very thing that would cause you to walk away from him. Did you catch in the story what this man did with restored sight? He cast his gaze on Jesus and he followed him. He didn't say, well, great, now I've got my sight. Now I can go do all those things that I've been sitting on the road daydreaming about. As soon as he immediately received his sight, verse 43, followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. I love that this guy became like a worship leader to the crowds. The ones that told him, be quiet, stop talking. As soon as he began to praise, they were like, we're going to join with you. What would you do with what God would give to you? Would you follow Christ or would you continue to follow your own agenda? God loves you too much, too much just to grant any and every request of yours just because you believe. This man used what he asked and requested of Jesus to follow him and to worship him. This is it. This is the last recorded miracle of Jesus before he goes to the cross. The next 12 to 24 hours, Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, and it was a hellish week 
for the Savior. What I love about this story positioned in the Gospels right before Jesus goes to Jerusalem is how encouraging it must have been for the Messiah to have one more who placed his faith in him, followed him, and worshipped him. I wonder during Passion Week, during a week of just suffering, of people denying him, betraying him, how he looked at upon Bartimaeus. There's one more who followed me as the son of David, as the Messiah, who used a great gift that I gave to him to follow and to worship. Just finish with this. What do you learn from this story that took place 10 miles outside the city of Jerusalem, hours before Jesus entered in? What are things that you can apply to what happened in this one story of a blind man who requested his sight from Jesus and said, receive it, your faith has healed you. Here are three very quick things. The thing I learned from this story is Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the son of David, the promised, the fulfillment of scripture. He is the redeemer. He is the anointed one. He is God's son. The only one who caught that was the blind man. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. A lot of people have ideas about who Jesus is. And this week, a lot of people will be talking about Jesus because it's Easter. A lot of people are saying he's a good man. He was a prophet. He was a good teacher. Yes, those things are true. But it is not enough to stop there. Do you confess that Jesus Son of David, son of God, is the Messiah, is the Redeemer, is the one who brings you into right relationship with God now and forever. What I see in this story is a man who got who Jesus was and orientated his life, his request, and then his life around the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the, is the Messiah. Number two, Jesus Christ is worthy of putting your faith in. There is no one else in your world that is worth putting your faith in. There is no one or nothing else that is worth believing in that they can do for you what you long for most. Too many of us put our faith, our belief in things like relationships, in things like careers, in things like money, in things like you name it. There is only one who is worthy of putting your faith, of your belief in, and his name is Jesus. Jesus looked at this man and said, your faith. No one else would have said that to him, but Jesus did. The man who was blind could see, I'm putting my faith in him. A few moments with the Savior will radically alter my life. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is worthy of putting your faith in. And lastly, Jesus Christ is to be followed and worshipped. Reality is we're going to follow someone or something, and we will give our affection, adoration, our love, our worship to someone or something. And unfortunately, we often follow and give ourselves to lesser things. He's the Messiah he is worthy of your faith, the only one worthy of your faith. And Jesus Christ is to be followed and to be worshipped.
I'm really thankful as um, this story is just positioned just outside the city of Jerusalem. I'm really thankful that before we head into Passion Week, there was one more moment in time where there was a man who was broken, who cried out for mercy, who cried out for grace, and he cried out to the right man, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, came to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he used what Jesus did for him to follow him and to praise him, to worship him. Want us to sit and just reflect on the question that Jesus asked the man. I don't believe it was just a one-off question that was reserved only for him because it was a question Jesus often asked to people. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Some of you need to start with the posture and the position of Jesus. What I need right now is mercy. My life is just riddled with just self and with pride. I think too much of myself. Jesus, what I need from you right now is just mercy. Some of us need to not ask Jesus, will you do this? And will you give me this? Will you take care of this? It's simple request. I remember that a father looked at Jesus and said, can you heal my son? And Jesus said, of course I can heal your son. Have faith. And the father said, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. That's what the dad asked. So rather than asking for a relationship or to get out of debt or to get the job or to get the house or to get whatever, Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Grant me mercy. Grant me the desire to be faithful to you, to believe. Grant me the desire to stay the course that you have me on. Before you come and celebrate communion, I really want you to wrestle with, what are you asking of Jesus? Come and say, Jesus, I give thanks that I can even come to you. And this is the request that I lay down before you.